You're listening to She's My Cherry Pie, the baking podcast from the Cherry Bomb Podcast Network. I'm your host, Jesse Sheehan. I'm a baker, recipe developer, and author of three baking books, including my latest, Snackable Bakes. Each Saturday, I'm hanging out with the sweetest bakers around and taking a deep dive into their signature bakes. Today's guest is Roxana Julepat baker, pastry chef, and co-owner of Friends and Family Bakery in Los Angeles, and author of the baking book, Mother Grains. This native Los Angelian is known for her devotion to whole grains and a pastry case filled with dozens of beautifully executed bakes. Think Sonora wheat croissant, blue corn blueberry scones, rye chocolate chip cookies, and einkorn shortbread. And then there are the bowls and baguettes and all the other wonderful breads that Roxana and her team make. Roxana joins me to talk all things sourdough bread. She is, of course, an expert on this subject and guides me through her baking process and the recipe for her fruit nut bread from Mother Grains. Stay tuned for my chat with Roxana. Thank you to Plugra Premium European Style Butter for supporting today's show. As some of you know, I've been a big fan of Plugra for some time now and was introduced to it at my very first bakery job when I was just a newbie baker. Fast forward to today, I'm a professional baker, cookbook author, and recipe developer, and I continue to rely on Plugra for all my baking needs. My fridge is always stocked with Plugra sticks and solids. I especially love that Plugra contains 82% butter fat. The higher butter fat content means less moisture and more fat, and as bakers know, fat equals flavor. Plugra butter is also slow churned, making it more pliable and easy to work with. I do a lot of baking this time of year for work and for myself and my family. Comfy bakes like my pistachio chocolate anytime buns and cinnamon sugar buttermilk donut holes. And I always reach for Plugra unsalted butter. I've also been making a lot of yeasted breads lately, and I love the buttery flavor Plugra adds to my dough. Plugra premium European-style butter is the perfect choice from professional kitchens to your home kitchen. Ask for Plugra at your favorite grocery store or visit Plugra.com for a store locator and recipes. Let's check in with today's guest. Roxana! So excited to have you on She's My Cherry Pie and to talk fruit and nut sourdough bread with you and so much more. Thank you so much for having me. This is so exciting. Yay! So in describing your dessert style, you've said that the kind of pastry you make is honest pastry, and I love that. And in describing honest pastry, you've said that you're just not one to like use tweezers to put flowers onto your baked goods, which I also love. Can you unpack for us what like honest pastry is? basically is very, very reflective of the ingredients that are in the pastry and of the technique that is used in the pastry. So yes, I do. I love eating all those pastries and desserts and food made with tweezers and tons of flowers. Yes, they're beautiful concoctions and I want to devour them and take all the photos and all of those things. And I have so much respect and admiration for the people that make them. It's just not the pastry that we make. Anything we make at the bakery, I just want you to feel that somebody put their hands in there and that it was a small batch and that it was baked fresh and that we can really speak to every ingredient that's in it, whether it's freshly milled flour to seasonal fruit to a little bit of brown sugar. There are things that don't have fancy names and they're really identifiable. 
I also wondered if you could tell us like what the pastry case looks like on a Saturday or Sunday, because I think I've read that they're like maybe like 42 pastries, maybe more. I've also read that you when people like are surprised by that, you're kind of like I opened a bakery to bake. I mean, it seems like (laughs) your philosophy as a baker is kind of go big or go home. Right. Well, you know, business is business, right? So Monday through Friday, our sales are very conservative. They're very lunch oriented. This is also LA. This is the town of the cheat day. So Monday through Friday, everybody's going to eat a little bit more conservatively. Sales are going to be a little bit different. People are, are, are going in for salads and sandwiches, a little bit of breakfast, high protein, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, we sell sourdough loaves and we'll sell our croissants here and there. And like, a, a, you know, spelled bread blueberry muffins are going out the door. But Saturdays and Sundays are the day that people are really coming in to buy a box of pastries. It's the one day that I get to use all my little treats. Like I made cherry jam and then I made apple butter and then we made pear confit. So this is our opportunity to use all that stuff. We also make all this laminated dough, right? Like our croissant dough is like the beast that we deal with every day. So we have all this dough to make awesome, beautiful, fun shapes. What are we going to put in there? So uh, that's how you end up with 42 I love, 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 love. Now, I want you to tell us a little bit about your gorgeous, informative first book, Mother Grains. Can you tell us about what inspired it and what the kind of the premise is for those that don't know the book? So my background is actually in communications. I am a journalism major. So I always have been pretty goodish about documenting my recipes and keeping a lot of things on file. So when we opened the bakery, it made perfect sense that we would document what we were doing, especially because all those recipes that I've had collected over the year, this enormous repertoire, because, you know, it was 20 years, 15 to 20 years. There's a lot of recipes. So we were morphing all these recipes into whole grain versions of themselves. And I really wanted to sort of put that process in paper. In doing so, we kind of like gather all this information. It made perfect sense to publish something. So I wrote a book proposal and much to my surprise, there was quite a bit of interest in it. So it felt that the time to talk about grain was right. And I felt that I had to be so persuasive and apologetic of why it was important to use grains and why you should start with just this little percentage and you will see you'll fall in love and you'll do more and more and more. And by the time the book was out, I just couldn't believe like how people were like, you don't need to explain it. This is exactly right. You know, yeah, sure. We'll put all that grain. That's fine. It's incredible. I love that. There were a couple of fun little fun facts from um, from Mother Grains that I loved because they really resonated for me, like little things that you do. I think it's probably a list in the front of the book. But one thing I loved was you say, like, you always rotate your pans when you're baking, yep. which I do, too, just from my bakery days and also because of hot spots in my own home oven. But it's funny. A lot of people don't, if they don't have to, they don't. But I always feel like the bake is like much more even and, and just makes more sense to me if I do that. And not only that, you're doing it when the recipe is baked halfway. Yes. So it gives you an opportunity to see how things are going. Yes. You, it's a quick chicken. Me too. I, I totally agree. And then I also love this. I think when you're talking about tools, maybe in the tool section of your book, you talk about the importance of your hands. Yep. I mean, I'm always literally in the tool section for my new book. I'm literally like number one tool, hands. Please get dirty, touch things, separate an egg with your yep. hands. It's okay. Definitely. And not only that is I love the idea. Of course, we scale everything and we measure everything. But definitely, definitely, you, everybody should know what one tablespoon of salt feels in your hand. 
familiarize yourself with the process, don't be afraid to put the spoon aside and scoop something with your hand. Yeah, right? I love I love that. And I the final one that I loved is to bake on the dark side, <laughs> which is so true. I once heard Carla Hall say something like there's flavor in the brown. 100%. And it's so true these not to be mean but like these pale pies no, that people no, bake. Thank you. I'm just so confused. I know it's golden right. and golden is pretty, but right. actually it can be dark. It's okay. There's real science supporting this. This is uh, called Maillard reaction. The caramelization of all these products generates flavor compounds. This is well documented. It's a scientific fact. <laughs> we have enough information to know that this is true, but also it's not a matter of flavor. Also, it's a matter of texture, right? Mm-hmm. Think about all the things that happen when we underbake. That means that pastries can sing in the center. That means that pastries can get doughy and feel dull. It will also affect the way they look. I don't know. There's absolutely no excuse to to go pale. I, I agree. We'll be right back. Today's episode is presented by California prunes, the best kind of prunes out there. I'm a big fan of California prunes for two reasons. They're a great addition to your pantry when it comes to smart snacking and baking. California prunes are good for your gut, your heart, and even your bones. They contain dietary fiber and other nutrients to support good gut health and vitamin K, copper, and antioxidants to support healthy bones. I've started making myself a daily smoothie, which is a great vehicle for incorporating healthy foods into your diet. One of my favorite combinations right now is blueberries and kale with some prunes added for natural sweetness and depth of flavor. When it comes to baking, you can use California prune puree to replace some of the sugar, eggs, or fat in a recipe. It's super easy to whip up. Just blend prunes and water together, and voila! You can also add California prunes to any treat that calls for dried fruit, like bread, scones, cakes, and cookies. Prunes pair well with ingredients like chocolate, caramel, honey, coffee, even chilies. They also add sweetness and depth to savory recipes like chicken marbella sauces, or stews. For recipe ideas and more, be sure to check out the California Prunes website at californiaprunes.org. Happy baking and happy snacking. I've got great news, listeners. Jubilee 2024 is taking place Saturday, April 20th at Center 415 in Manhattan, and tickets are on sale now. Jubilee is the largest gathering of women and culinary creatives in the food and drink space in the U.S., It's a beautiful day of conversation and connection, and I hope to see you there. You can learn more and snag tickets at cherrybomb.com. Now back to our guest. Okay, now we're going to talk about your buckwheat fruit nut bread. And I love this. You've said it's a good gateway recipe because the add-ins in some ways are more integral to the flavor of the loaf than the dough itself. So it's a great kind of beginner, sourdough, beginner bread recipe for folks. You have buckwheat in here, which adds flavor and texture. And I love this, too, that you've kind of put your favorite fruits and nuts in this bread and that the high ratio of that makes it really rustic, which I also love. We'll start with the starter. So first, can you tell peeps, I'm sure most listeners know, but can you tell us about what a sourdough starter is? Yeah. So sourdough starters are basically a little culture. If you were to look through a microscope, you will see yeast and bacteria. So it's this sort of like petri dish (laughs) of creatures that get along and do really good things when exposed to flour and water. And this is a living thing. So we say refresh the starter or feed the starter. 
And it is exactly what's happening. Anytime we add flour, which is starch and therefore energy for this living organisms, they are metabolizing this starch in a moist environment, which is why we add water, and generating carbon dioxide and ethanol. So eventually alcohol will happen, which is exactly what happens when you make wine or beer, for example. Beer being a, a, a case in which we use grain also. If we are putting this in the right ratios to make a bread dough, this will give us the leavening yes. to make this bread rice. You know, a lot of people are intimidated by sourdough and by starters. And I love this line of yours. If you can read a scale, you can make a starter. <laughs> and that you've said the key is sticking to your schedule. And I also love this. You said that rye is the best flour for a starter because it's rich and fast acting enzymes. Can you unpack yeah. that? It is, it is kind of like the energy bar. If you were to do it, and I'm not quite sure about the science behind it, but it is more of it. What is it? Is it just like it is more available to the yeast and the bacteria in the sourdough starter? So it happens a lot faster. Mm -hmm. If you were to do a side by side comparison, the starter fed with rye is the happiest. However, because it happens so fast, it can also collapse very fast, right? Because like starters have, I you know, you just mentioned that I. I recommend that you uh, stick to a schedule. And that is because it does have a lifespan, right? It will eventually die or it will eventually lose its oomph, so to speak, right? So, which is why we have to feed it on somewhat of a regular schedule. So, rye starter is great, or say a starter fed with rye or a little bit of rye is good to get things started, but eventually you can rely on your on your wheat or your wheat flour is good for me, in my opinion, I kind of like to use the flour that I'm using in my bread. That's the flour that I want to feed the starter with. Unless I'm using something like, say, in this case, we have a little buckwheat. I wouldn't feed my starter with buckwheat because buckwheat is a non-glutinous flour. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I definitely want my starter to sort of like resemble the bread dough that is go going to become. And I know we're going to add filtered water to our starter. We're going to go through the steps of the starter in a minute. But why filtered? And do you buy that or well, do you have a filter in the bakery? Here's my dirty secret. <laughs> I don't filter. So the reason why we filter is because, you know, we know that tap water is rich in minerals and it can be harder in some cities than others. So, you know, we want to make sure that our starter is as pure as possible or like that there is nothing no heavy metals in there that are going to compromise the quality of the starter. I've made a starter for 20 years, and I have to say that I have never seen anything affected by the water to the point where you're like, got to get a water filter. Now, I don't want any bread people here angry at me for telling people to not worry about it, but it's just my preference. I'm totally cool with tap water, LA tap water, right on the money. I drink it. The bread can have it. Sounds good. I would say same with New York. I don't when I make sourdough, I don't filter New York my water. New York is famous for its water. Yeah, yeah, too. we yeah. have very tasty water. <laughs> okay, so on day one, this is going to be an eight day process of making our starter. We're going to combine some dark rye flour. And is dark just your preference, or is dark better than is? I don't know rye flour that well. Is there a dark and a light? Dark rye flour is the industry standard for whole grain rye flour. I have a very strong relationship with my lo local miller here in Los Angeles. It's a company, a small company. Women own and operate it and it's called Grist and Toll. Would they ship? 
Gristentoll.com, baby. Uh, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. The rye flower is absolutely beautiful. All right. of Nan Kohler's uh, flowers are absolutely beautiful. Fantastic. And I can speak with some authority years in to this grain thing. I find very few flowers compared to her. But there is great rye flower all over. And, and you should never be like, oh, you should only ship this flower from Los Angeles. You have flour, go ahead and bake. That's more important. Those of us who have access to a local farmer's market, you'll be surprised there might be a flower vendor already. I always think it's important for people, just like you said, if you want to bake, you should be able to bake. If it means you're buying a supermarket brand, no 100%. shame in that. No, no shame, shame that. never. So we're going to mix our a little bit of dark rye flour with some filtered water, mix it together. Do you like to use a spatula at this point, a wooden spoon? I am a big fan of wooden tools. Wooden spatula is good. You know those little offset spatulas? They're great just because they're the right size. I realized this because all of a sudden, like, all the bakers are like, where are the, sp- the offset spatulas? Oh, in the bread station. They're easy to clean. They do the job. I whittle my wooden spoons. Oh, my gosh. I'm ending the interview. <laughs> no, 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 no. This is the worst part. I am repurposing broken peels. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> this just started, by the way. Okay. This just started. I love it. Okay, so we're going to cover at room temp, and that was our first day, rye flour and filtered mm-hmm. water. Then on day two, we're going to add some bread flour and some whole wheat flour and a little bit more water. So now we add our bread and whole wheat, and we're giving it a little bit of food. Yeah. Then on day three, we add a little bit more water, a little bit more whole wheat, a little bit more bread, and now we're going to discard part of the culture mm-hmm. from day one and two. And then we repeat on day four. On day five, we start feeding our starter every eight to 12 hours. So twice a day. Yeah. Yeah. Prior to this, it was we were going 24. So it's our whole wheat, it's our bread and our water. And then we discard part of the culture. Are you saving any of the discard to make a pancake, to make a this, to make a that? Reality is you will always have more discard than you can use. But yes, it does make great pancakes. You can also dry it and spread it on a, mm-hmm. on a parchment paper and dry it in, in flakes and give it to other people that don't want to make their own starter. That's easy to reconstitute with a little water later. But yeah, you will always have more discard. So I think that anybody who's going to foster a starter in their lives should come to terms with the fact that there will be started going down the drain. Yes. On day eight, we're, we're ready to use our starter. It should be bubbly, frothy, have a pleasantly sour smell. And then you'll be using some of the starter for the recipe. And then the rest of it, you'll continue to feed. You'll, that's yep. how one keeps their starter alive. So now we're going to make the bread. You need to start with this bread if you're going to make it in a Dutch oven in the oven. Uh, you need either a round banneton or you can make it, which I also love, in a loaf pan. Yeah. But tell us, for those that maybe don't know, what a banneton is. And if one doesn't have a banneton, can we use just kind of a shallow mixing bowl? And Absolutely. All of the above. So I'm actually a fan of a loaf pan. I think that that will be a cookbook I would write, the loaf pan, <laughs> for the love of the loaf pan. But it's a great shape. Everything bakes well. There's a variety. Also, I have to say, I love eight and a half by four and a half inch so much better than nine by five. I mean, I know it's so finicky, yep. but it just looks the tight yep. sides, the tight yep. corners. It does it all. I think also what it is good is like a lot of, there are so many little steps where you cannot be great in bread making. And it's what maybe makes some people shy away from making bread. The fact that you put it in a loaf pan and gives you a good shape, hell yeah, you know, can we just yes. do that? So that's why I do like to bake this bread mostly in a, in a loaf pan. It also then gives you really nice sized toasts. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
But yes, you can use a bowl, right? It can it can ferment in that bowl and you can just release it from the bowl and then put it in the oven, in the Dutch oven. You could use a banneton, which is usually is a basket, basically. They're made out of pulp, a little bit of wood. Sometimes they're lined with a little linen. You could also use a, just a towel and have it on a plate. The only thing is that your dough will slack. It's nice to give it structure yeah, with nice some kind of shape. And I just wanted to mention, so we're, we're getting our loaf pan or our banneton ready or our bowl, but it's going to take us two days, so peeps plan accordingly. In the morning of our first day, around maybe 6 a.m., so we have lots of time, so this is for early risers. Or you can do it later and stay up late. But at around 6 a.m., you're going to feed your starter, and so it'll be ready to use in about 8 or 10 hours. And maybe that day you'll candy your kumquats. And if right. you don't have kumquats, you can use grapefruit or orange or lemon peels. And you're going to candy by blanching three different times for one-minute intervals in boiling water, and then simmer the blanched kumquats in sugar and water and a vanilla bean plus its scraped pulp until translucent and then cool completely. I love that. So that's our kumquats. The other thing we're going to do at this point is toast our pecans. And you have the most amazing pecan toasting tip, which is about eight to 10 minutes. But what, this is the part of the tip I love that you then cut the, if you're not sure, you're usually I just smell the nut and then I know it's ready. But if you're not sure, I love this. Roxana says to cut the nut in half. And if the inside is golden, you know you're there. You're there. I love that. Yeah. I love a visual. I think it's always nice when you write recipes anyway to have a couple of cues. Right. So it's not just fragrant. It's not just time. It's also this. Well, and what, what smells toasted to you might be burnt to someone yes, else. Yes, so true. So true. Okay, so now it's been about eight to 10 hours after feeding our starter. And now we're going to hydrate or autolyze our bread flour, our whole wheat flour, and our buckwheat by mixing it together with warm filtered water. Why warm? So it will actually accelerate the process. Because we know that this starter, this family of yeast and bacteria, performs better in a warmer environment. So you're basically giving your bread a leg up. Love it. And now we're going to let it sit covered with plastic wrap or a dish towel? What do you prefer? Either. Okay. Yeah. You can also put it in a container with a lid. Okay. Perfect. For about one hour till a wet and sticky dough forms. Can you tell us why we autolyze or hydrate? Yeah. So basically, we talk so much about mixing and how important mixing is and and how great it is to do folds into your bread to add strength to the dough. But at the end of the day, flour has all the components to develop its strength and flexibility. And that happens with water and time, right? So you would notice that from the beginning of that hour, 60 minutes later, that dough is completely different. If you were to like even pull from it, you already see that flexibility. And then you're gonna mix it with the sourdough and that will make it a little stronger. And then you will also perhaps fold it onto itself, which will make it even stronger. But that initial step is everything. I love that we're empowering our yeah. flour. So now we're going to soak our nuts, our kumquats, some figs, golden raisins, and currants for about 10 minutes in a covered bowl and then strain them through a sieve. Why are we soaking? So the idea of soaking is to make sure that all these things that are generally dry have their own mo moisture so they don't pull out moisture from the dough itself. Love that. And then and I strain through. You know, whatever works. Okay. Yeah. And is that what you do with all, like any add-ins? I mean, not a chocolate chip, but any add-ins that when you're baking, you're going to soak? For the most part, yeah. Like a regular, let's say we're making a loaf bread that's just leavened with baking powder and maybe a little bit of baking soda and it has currants in it. Would you soak them? 
You know, I would say that if we're talking about, say, a quick bread, mm -hmm. I may not do that because I have a lot more control of moist ingredients and that kind of cake or quick bread than I, I would in a sourdough. Makes right? sense. And also because the sourdough, when you're working with yeast, be it commercial or natural, it's going to have to wait a long, exactly. long time with those. So smart. So now, by hand, we're going to combine the starter, the hydrated or autolyzed flours, the soaked fruit and nuts, some kosher salt, buckwheat honey. Why do we need the honey? I assume you like the buckwheat because it goes with the buckwheat yeah, flour. Uh, yeah, mother and child kind yes. of sort of, right? Just for that reason, okay. really. But I find buckwheat honey to be pretty, pretty freaking amazing, yeah. you know. It happens because the hives sort of are collecting their pollen next to buckwheat plants. And buckwheat in California is a cover crop, which means that it's a transition crop in between, say, vegetables, right, or other grains. Its role is to keep the soil rich and in good shape. I find that really romantic. <laughs> so you have all those bees that pollinate all these flowers. That pollen creates a really, really dark amber honey, very, very, very assertive, really, really delicious. Not for the faint of heart. It is a little bit higher in all the good things, and it will help you fight a cold, all, all that kind of stuff. And you just add the little bit of honey to the bread for flavor, or is it playing a role? For flavor, for, you know, Sweet. synchronicity, yep. kind of like a little mystique yeah. chic in there. And also, if you wish, you can also brush the top of the loaf when it comes out with that. We've mixed all of these things together to form the dough, and you mix well to distribute all those add-ins. Then we're going to transfer to a clean bowl. Whatever works for you. At the bakery, obviously, we use a lot of non-reactive bowls, so that, those are great. You could also use Tupperware. That works. Tupperware with a lid also. Great. So we're going to let the dough proof at a warm room temperature for about three and a half to four hours until it's risen by about a third. Then we're going to shape into a bowl. So that means we're going to transfer the dough to a floured work surface. And is at this point, which flour would you use to flour your work surface? This bread in particular has refined bread flour. Yep. So I would just use that. Yep. That's easy, easy enough. And then we're going to gently flatten the dough into like a rough rectangle, bring all four corners to the center, kind of that thing you do where you're kind of pulling mm -hmm. each corner over, pinch the corners together on the top, and then invert the boule. Turn the boule over onto your work surface, and then... We're gently rotating the boule against the surface, which is like where you cup your hands. Yeah, and that kind of like creates a little bit of a seam at the bottom. I, we call that the belly button at work, actually. I love that. So you're sealing the bottom where those four corners connected. Then we're going to generously flour our banneton, with, if we're making it in a Dutch oven, with rice flour. Now, I also use rice flour, but can you remind me why? I can't remember why everyone wants us it's to use rice flour. It's pretty greedy and kind of dry, so it's really good about not getting absorbed by the dough. So it remains that sort of that protection separation layer in between the banneton and the dough. And I know, just because it's what I buy, that there's a uh, like a Bob's Red Mill rice flour product. But is that another fl flower that you're No, that's totally great. Okay, yeah. Perfect. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, at this point, it's a tool, right? Like, we won't taste it. So maybe we don't want to spend a lot of money on yep, it. Yep, I hear you. And so we're going to place our boule inside our banneton with the seam up because it's going to get inverted later. If we're doing this in a loaf pan, we would just place the boule seam side down in the loaf pan, lightly coated with a nonstick spray. And we're going to refrigerate either way, loaf or banneton, overnight. And I thought this was interesting. Why uncovered? When you leave it uncovered, you kind of build the skin. Mm -hmm. 
and that skin makes it easy for us to either slosh in the morning, right? It is very easy to invert it, and then it's not sticky. So it's just for easy handle. I love that. I feel like most recipes will tell you to cover, and I've had sticky issues, mm -hmm. and also sometimes I'm not as great with my lame as I want right. to be. So oh, that's such a great tip. Now we're going to bake the bread. So in the morning of the next day, we're going to remove the bread from the refrigerator about an hour before baking, preheat our oven to about 450, and we're going to place the lid on our Dutch oven. Do I love Dutch ovens? Yes, there's so many great ones. And you can go as pricey as Le Creuset, right? Or you can go as affordable as Lodge. They're all the same and really, really great. However, have you heard of the Challenger Baker? No. Oh, this is a beautiful, beautiful piece of equipment. So it is uh, mostly a flat surface with a beautiful lid dome. It is a little bit pricey, but for those serious bread bakers, I think it's a really great tool. It's also very safe to use because it has handles on the top. You know, those Dutch ovens can get a little cumbersome, right? So that's a really great tool. That's really, great. really great toy, great investment if you're serious about this bread baking thing. So now we're going to place the, the Dutch oven or the Challenger baker into the oven for about 30 minutes before baking. Also, just a note to people, I, I know it's different in a restaurant kitchen, but it does take ovens a long time to preheat. Like you really want to give your oven time. Yeah. And not only are we preheating the oven, it's like almost like we're preheating the oven and then we're preheating the Dutch oven in the oven. Exactly. So it might even take longer than usual. So now we're going to cut a piece of parchment paper a few inches wider than the boule and we're going to invert the banneton onto the parchment paper to release the bread. And we're going to use a lame. It's just a razor. Whatever works for you. I would say that most of us or many of us have dull knives at home, so a knife is not great. But if you happen to have a really, really sharp, say, Japanese thin knife, carbon steel or something like that, yeah, of course you can use that. So we're going to use a lame or a sharp paring knife, or sharp Japanese knife, to cut an X about a half inch deep on the surface of the bowl. Can you tell us why we do this to, to let this... So be? basically, this lash is pretty, first. And then second is also our way of telling our bread, this is where you want to open up and expand. If not, the bread will choose for itself. So it might explode somewhere else in funky shapes. We've all done that. But when we do this open, this is where we say, this is your vent. This is where you're going to release all your gas and like prep up. Yeah. So now we're going to carefully remove our, our hot Dutch oven, remove the lid, lift our parchment paper from those sides since we made the parchment paper longer than the boule but about the same width as the bowl, lift the parchment paper, transfer to our Dutch oven, put the lid back on into the oven. If we're doing it in a loaf pan, we're just going to cover with foil into the oven. Yep. For both, we bake for about 30 minutes. And then at the 30-minute mark, remove our foil, remove our lid. And I loved you had a little explanation for why we're covering mm -hmm. about helping the dough to retain enough steam. Can you explain that? Sure. So the reason why we cover when we bake in a home oven we cover with foil in the case of the loaf or you put the lid in the case of the Dutch oven is because we want the steam generated by all that hydration in the bowl or in the dough to stay around your the surface of your bread and in doing that keeping that sort of outer layer supple and allowing the dough to expand if you didn't do that the radiant heat from the oven will seal that outer layer, stopping the dough from like expanding as much as it could. 20 to 30 minutes of covering your dough will give you that. 
I love that. Like I've always done that, but I right. didn't. I didn't know the reason I was doing that. So I love. I love knowing that. Now we remove the lid or the tin foil. We bake another fifteen to twenty minutes, and at this point, that removal of the lid does help the bread exterior caramelize and bake, and we get our chewy crust. The bread is ready when the crust is a dark mahogany brown. We talked about the importance mm-hmm. of a dark bake. And a digital thermometer inserted in the center reads 200. Are you using one in the bakery or are you so used to what it looks like that you don't even need it? We use thermometers every day. Every day. We temp everything. It kind of like is sort of our thermometer to tell us exactly where we're at. Just knowing the temperature of the dough will tell us how long it will take to for us, for the bread to rise, knowing the internal temperature of a loaf will tell us if it's ready or how much longer does it have. So for example, in our deck oven now, we know that it takes five minutes to go up by 10 degrees, right? So that's great information. So yes, we definitely, we trust ourselves and all our instincts, but definitely we are, they're just terrific tools. I love that. If it's the boule, we're going to invert it onto a cooling rack to release the bread and cool completely before slicing. If it's in the pan, we let it stay in the pan for about 30 minutes, and then we remove it, let it rest for about an hour before slicing. Why are we putting things in paper bags? I mean, I mean, not things, bread. Like, mm-hmm. I always do that, or I always think that's the ideal. Why is a paper bag so like better than plastic wrap, for instance? Y- you know, plastic wrap, of course, works well. Paper is just a little bit of a friendly environment because, you know, plastic wrap is touching the skin. And paper is still allowing our, our crust to, to stay a little dry. You know, sometimes when you wrap it with plastic, you'll notice that the exterior of the bread can moisten a little bit. But, it, you know, either one works. Great. Can you tell us a little bit about your rye chocolate chip cookies and your incredible cardamom buns, which I think might be your fave? Yeah, both but two, two strong faves up there. You know, there were a couple of missions I had in life when I opened this bakery. One is like, I want to make my croissants have Sonora wheat because it is the emblematic wheat of California. It grows well here. It has been here for a hundred years. It's the flower of the Southwest. It's sustainable, blah, blah. But then I also knew that I wanted to use a, a different flower in the everyday chocolate chip cookie. So chocolate and rye, I mean, hello, best friends, best friends, right? Very compatible flavors excellent texture together, right? So you have melty chocolate, a little bit of chew from the rye. And rye adds a little bit of sourness or acidity to the dough that is a really, really good balance. It adds a little bit of balance to the cookie. It actually became a very grown-up cookie to me, which I'm fine. I'm fine, you know, where not everything has to be chocolate chunk kind of kind of thing. So that makes that makes us really happy. That's a really really interesting cookie. However, I have made chocolate chip cookies with every flower under the sun, and sometimes I want to do something else, but I think that would be a revolt. So I won't. I won't try that again. Cardamom buns are near and dear to my heart. I found them just traveling. It was a completely unexpected experience. I was in a really beautiful bakery that was probably one of my favorites in the world. It's called Juno the Baker. I've been. Oh, beautiful. In Copenhagen, right? I've been every time I've been there. And it was not what I went there for. I went there for a rye loaf. And I bought two and put them in my bag. And I was on my way to the airport. I'm in the airplane. And I'm like, okay, let's have one of those things. And, you know... It was really one of those moments where the earth stood still and it was just a really, really magical bite that, I mean, I can still 
remember every every second of that experience. But what is really, really fascinating is that I didn't know that there was such a tradition of baking with cardamom in Scandinavia. My husband is Swedish-American. We had made pepper cocker together, but I don't really know that I understood the extent of the presence of cardamom in their baking. So I went down the rabbit hole and I did a gazillion testers. I happen to have a Danish baker on my crew. She's been with me for six years, Maya. And she could tell me like, no, that's not the one. We played around forever until we found our happy medium. I made a friend, a Swedish-American baker and writer in her own right, Erica Landon. She lives in Santa Barbara. And she was like, let me let me help you develop this recipe. So I had true experts behind this project. So and I we make them only Saturday and Sunday. Only Maya and I make them <laughs> to this day. My favorite thing to make, my favorite thing to eat. Thank you so much for chatting with me today, Roxana. And I just want to say that you are my cherry pie. And you are mine. That's it for today's show. Thank you to Plugra Premium European Style Butter and California Prunes for their support. Don't forget to subscribe to She's My Cherry Pie on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen, and tell your baking buddies about us. She's My Cherry Pie is a production of the Cherry Bomb Podcast Network and is recorded at CityVox Studio in Manhattan. Our producers are Carrie Diamond and Catherine Baker. Our associate producer is Jenna Sadu, and our editorial assistant is London Crenshaw. Thank you so much for listening to She's My Cherry Pie, and happy baking.